Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 180, The Cracks in the Shield Wall. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. So, if you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Kat, Carl, and Julia for signing up already. It's 8.38. Only two years earlier, the West Saxons were defeated by a fleet of Vikingers. And they responded to this loss the way you would expect them to. By completely ignoring the loss, and instead focusing on dynastic politics and making endowments to the church at Canterbury. And now, another fleet of Vikingers was sailing south, towards their allies in Cornwall. The first question you're probably asking is how did the Vikingers get Cornish allies? Well, we aren't entirely sure, but here are a few things for you to ponder over. The Scandinavians weren't just Vikingers, not even the ones who sailed on their longships. They were also traders, and to trade, you need contact with other communities. It's entirely possible that they had links with the Cornish through trade long before 838. Another point of interest is the fact that the Cornish and the West Saxons weren't exactly buddies. The Cornish were culturally aligned with many of the kingdoms in Wales. In fact, one of the reasons we think the West Saxons pushed so hard into their western border for generations was to cut off the direct land route between Cornwall and Wales. There was no love lost between the Cornish and the West Saxons. And you're probably already thinking about the third fact I'd like to point out. The Vikingers were opportunists. Did the Cornish share the same language, gods, and culture that they did? Nope. Were the Cornish goals the same as the Vikingers? No, not that either. But they hated the West Saxons. And that was probably good enough, at least for now. Also, as a bonus, the Vikingers were all pirates and the Cornish speak like pirates. Which isn't relevant at all, but it's totally true. They're all still walking around talking like pirates down there, even today. And can you tell that I love Cornwall? Because I do. Which shouldn't surprise you, because I'm Welsh. But, back to actual history. Always remember that the Vikingers tended to take whatever advantages they could get. They also don't appear to have been overly interested in cultural differences, as we know that Vikinger crews weren't exclusively Scandinavian. Their crews could include people from all over the known world. It seems that all you needed to be a Vikinger was skill and a certain moral flexibility. So, we're told that the Vikingers landed in Cornwall, joined up with any Cornish men who were willing to fight with them, and then began their march east, towards Wessex. And that, right there, might have been a mistake. Not adding the Cornish to their ranks. In fact, that was probably a really good thing. But marching doesn't seem to be all that tactically sound to me. Part of the strength of the Vikingers was the fact that they could choose the time and place of engagement provided that it was close to a coast or a major river. But here, we're told that the Vikingers landed and then started marching. I'm not convinced that was the wisest of choices, since it removed one of their major advantages, it made them a great deal slower, which would have given King Egbert time to raise his forces, 
And it put them in a situation where they were marching into unknown lands. And lands that Egbert would have known quite well. But hey, maybe they had a plan. Who knows? What we do know from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is that King Egbert heard of this landing and the ensuing Cornish alliance. So he marshaled his forces and rode out to meet them. The Chronicle tells us that he met the combined Danish and Cornish forces at a place called Hengiston, which many suspect is now the hill at Hingston Down. And then we get into classic Anglo-Saxon Chronicle problems. Do the scribes tell us about the basic tactics employed, like shield walls, battle formations, or reinforcements? No. Do the scribes tell us about how many were killed or wounded? (laughs) Of course not. Do they even tell us about the size of their forces? God, no. And here is one of the many times that I sound a bit like the angry Claremontian narrator, but this stuff is infuriating because we're heavily reliant upon the scribes, and in general, they were just asleep at the wheel and neglecting their duty. So, we know basically nothing. And all they tell us is that Egbert, quote, put flight to both the Welsh and the Danes, end quote. Yeah. We have King Egbert and his West Saxon forces defeating a combined army of Vikingers and Cornishmen, and we have no idea how he did it. Did he pull this off with just his war bands? Because if so, how did that happen since his war bands were defeated only a couple years earlier? I mean, maybe he went gangbusters into training at the same time that he was focusing upon dynastic politics. Or maybe he took his bloodied warriors and just took the superior ground, or ambushed them, or raised conscripts like an early form of the Ferd. Hell, did his son, King Aethelwulf of Kent, send his men to support the attack? Were the Vikingers too drunk to fight effectively, or were they betrayed by their Cornish allies? Who knows? For all we know, this was the work of the Kurgan, and the record is pretty much silent. But at least we're given one important bit of data. The West Saxons gave the Vikingers the business. And King Egbert was a battle-tested and effective leader, and he had proven it once again against a foe that was causing most of Western Europe to tremble. It turns out that for whatever reason, the West Saxons had the capability to be rather effective in battle with the Scandinavians, even when they were allied with the Cornish who were also historically a thorn in the side of Wessex. So, despite our lack of detail, that is really interesting. And then, less than a year later, on the 4th of February, 839, King Egbert of Wessex died. He would have been likely in his 60s, which was pretty good for the era. But it was a hell of a loss, because Egbert was a warrior king, and frankly, a brilliant statesman. Those were qualities that were deeply needed in Wessex during the mid-9th century. Losing him would have been bad for the kingdom even in good times, but now, with the spreading chaos in the English kingdoms, the loss of their Frankish buffer, and the arrival of large fleet of Vikingers, this was catastrophic. And I'm going to get to the fallout of that, but first, let's talk about who King Egbert was and where he came from, because his life gives us a good sense of how quick the swings of power could come. And it also gives us a sense of how these opportunities really were only available to a select few. 
When it comes down to it, it's criminal that King Egbert was a relatively unknown king, because he was an incredible ruler, and Wessex was quite lucky to have had him. He was a quick study and an effective leader, and his abilities should not be undervalued. We've seen kingdoms suffer under incompetent and flat-out crazy leaders who were told spent their time, quote, gibbering with demons, end quote. So to have someone with the skill and the vision to organize Wessex into an effective bulwark was quite the boon. But something to remember is that it was sheer luck that Egbert turned out to be gifted. It wasn't that he was selected because he was the best candidate. His rule was largely predestined by his birth. And if he was an idiot or useless, Unferth the peasant still wouldn't have had much hope of seizing the throne from Egbert, regardless of how brilliant and visionary he was. And even if Unferth did somehow seize the throne, the nobles of Wessex never would have supported him, based solely on his low birth. The reality of this nobility system is that to have a ruler as effective as Egbert really is pure luck. Since the system didn't select people for ability as much as it did for dynastic reasons. The other way that Wessex lucked out with Egbert was that he had a top-notch education, which was rare, even for the nobility. Obviously, Unferth the peasant never would have had the opportunity to learn at the Frankish court. But chances are that Egbert himself wouldn't have learned in that court if it wasn't for the fact that he was run out of town by Offa, and Charlemagne made it a habit of befriending Offa's enemies. So, despite the fact that the world was owned and run by a small group of families, and they jealously guarded their privilege, through what seems like dumb luck, Wessex still ended up with a leader of uncanny ability. But before we say goodbye to this unsung hero of Wessex, let's remember where Egbert came from and what he did with that power once he was handed it. Now, Egbert was a descendant of Cherditch through his great-great-grandfather, Ingild, brother of King Inna of Wessex. But despite that extenuated dynastic connection, Egbert was already on the path to power thanks to his father, Aelmund, who was the king of the neighboring kingdom of Kent in the 780s. You'll remember from earlier cultural episodes that these royal families were intermarrying. And so in Egbert, we can see one of the results of that, because from about the age of 10, young Egbert had legitimate claims to both the thrones of Kent and Wessex. So that's how he started. And then when he was somewhere between the ages of 15 and 19 years old, the new king of Wessex, who was from a rival dynasty, and King Offa of Mercia forced young Egbert into exile. Luckily, as we mentioned, Charlemagne often gave shelter to King Offa's enemies. So for three years, Egbert lived at the center of Western scholarly thought for his time. And he used his time in exile well learning the intricacies of rule, and likely tightening his bonds with the Carolingian court. Because when he came back to Britain, he almost certainly arrived with Frankish support. And then he took the throne of Wessex. It was an impressive comeback. And you'll remember from more recent episodes that he consolidated his power, annexed Kent, Surrey, and Sussex, defeated Mercia, and even brought his forces into Northumbria. He fought against the Brits of Wales and Cornwall. He fought against fleets of Vikingers. And all the while, he was reorganizing the political structure of Wessex and placed his son, Aethelwulf, on the throne of Kent to better strengthen his position in the West Saxon halls of power. 
and engaged in dynastic politics to ensure that Aethelwulf would have church support to inherit Wessex. In a certain light, it seemed crazy and short-sighted to spend so much time buying the favor of Canterbury when he had fleets of Vikingers on the horizon. But the truth of it is that through those actions, Egbert was one of the major heroes of the House of Wessex. Alfred gets the vast majority of attention, but it was through the efforts of Egbert that his line, which was based upon a distant branch of the West Saxon royal dynasty, would become the dominant political force in Wessex, and eventually England. The story of King Egbert, while not quite a rags-to-riches story, is still an impressive comeback story, and an excellent example of a leader who balanced military pursuits with nation-building. And that brings us to the current crisis. Because Egbert was dead. He had an heir, King Aethelwulf of Kent. But the problem that was undoubtedly on Aethelwulf's mind was the fact for the last 200 years, no king of Wessex had successfully bequeathed the kingdom to his son. For two centuries, that had not happened. Not even once. But, against all odds, Aethelwulf was crowned king of Wessex, probably on that same year, at Kingston-upon-Thames in Surrey. And then he gave the crown of Kent to his son, Aethelstan. So for the first time in 200 years, the crown of Wessex passed from father to son. Now how did King Egbert manage to solve the problem that had been hamstringing the West Saxons for generations? Well, as you might remember, we have two charters from 838, so a year before he died, where he restored property to the Archbishop of Canterbury and granted land to Winchester on the condition that Egbert and his heirs had the, quote, firm and unshakable friendships from Archbishop Cholnoth and his congregation at Christ Church, end quote. It probably seemed crazy and like a waste of time to be focusing upon stuff like that when we had Viking attacks, and the men of Wessex had so recently been defeated by a flotilla of 35 ships of Northmen. However, what he was doing was actually quite brilliant, since he managed to buy church support for his son. Not only that, but Campbell points out that he might have even had his son anointed at Kingston-upon-Thames in front of the whole council just to hammer at home that Aethelwulf should inherit. As a consequence, here we are with a clear successor to the throne of Wessex. And frankly, that too was really lucky for Wessex, because the last thing that they needed right now was a succession crisis, because the Northmen were just getting started on the island. In fact, in 839, at the same time as King Aethelwulf's accession to the throne, were told that the Vikingers were ravaging Scotland, and had burned and looted the southern part of the kingdom of Fortriu, near the Tay. This was a very real and present threat to life in Britain. And if you were hoping the Franks would get their house in order and get back to patrolling the coast, think again. The following year, in 840, Emperor Louis the Pious died. And his sons, apparently not sated by the three previous civil wars, launched into a fourth one that would last for three years. The Vikingers had a field day. And Charles the Bald of Francia, he was the young half-brother whose inheritance caused a lot of these problems, well, 
his territory was hit the worst, as it was the most exposed to the sea. The Vikinger fleets would inflict some pretty brutal casualties on the continent, and the Civil War presented the opportunistic Vikingers with a far more attractive prospect than Britain. There was a lot of money to be seized, and none of the Franks were prepared to protect their own lands. But, despite the fact that they hammered the Franks, that doesn't mean that Britain was left entirely alone. In fact, on that same year, we read of a Vikinger attack at Portland, in which the Vikingers defeated Elderman Aethelhun and his warband from Dorset. They killed the Elderman and then looted the area. And meanwhile, over at Southampton, Elderman Wolfherd fought against the Vikingers that landed there, and only after, quote, great slaughter, end quote, did he manage to obtain victory. These Vikingers were not letting up. And life in Britain didn't stop either. So, on that same year, we hear that King Wiglaf of Mercia died. Now, he was probably most notable for not following in his predecessor's footsteps and doing a suicide march into East Anglia. But, even though he did that very wise thing of leaving East Anglia alone, his problems didn't stop. He was ousted from power by King Egbert, and then had to retake the kingdom in the following year. So, for the most part, after he managed to retake his kingdom, he generally just kept his head down. He didn't get into a lot of fights. He didn't go on an expansionist war footing. He just ruled Mercia. You know, with all these wars, I think you could do worse for a king than Wiglaf. Holding and conserving your power wasn't exactly the worst course of action, you know? But there was a problem. It looks like his son, Wigmund, had died. Not only that, but his grandson, Wigstan, was a pious man and interested in holy orders rather than secular rule. And that was a problem because it meant that the line of succession was suddenly unclear. But out of the chaos, Bertwolf took the throne, who was from... Uh, somewhere? It's possible that he was part of the B dynasty based upon his name. And if that's true, he might have been related to King Bjornred, who briefly ruled after King Aethelbald of Mercia was murdered. But that is entirely scholarly supposition. Ultimately, we don't know how he fit into the dynastic tree. And it's quite possible that he was part of the royal dynasty of the Huissa or Maganseta, or some other rival dynasty in Mercia. We just don't know. And this was another sign of the growing problems in Mercia. For generations, Wessex and Northumbria had been hampered by dynastic infighting, often demonstrated in the fact that the kings weren't being succeeded by their own close family members. But right at the same time that Wessex was moving beyond that problem, Mercia was launching headlong into it, with rival dynasties taking turns and fighting amongst themselves. The political power of the Midlands was waning. This fact is hammered home by King Bertwolf's new policies, which he immediately enacted. We're told that upon taking the throne, he seized lands from the Bishop of Worcester and granted them to his own men. Much like the kings who ruled over Northumbria in the last days of the Northern Supremacy, now we're seeing Midland and Southern kings being accused of robbing the church. In fact, in a later document dated to 849, the bishop made it a condition for a long lease of land to the king that the king must, quote, be more firmly a friend of the bishop and his community, end quote, and not rob them in the future. 
And while the Bishop of Worcester was able to get his lands back from the nobles of Mercia, at least eventually, he was put in the weird position of having to buy the lands back with four very choice horses, a bunch of gold, and a skillfully wrought dish of three pounds and two silver horns of three pounds. That's cheeky, right? Stealing something and then selling it back to the original owner? So, why was this happening? What changed in Mercia that gave rise to this sort of behavior? I mean, while it is possible that King Bertwolf was just a bad seed, it seems that there were cultural and economic forces at play, and he was acting in accordance with the incentives and pressures that Anglo-Saxon life had placed upon him. Because this was not an isolated incident. The thing is that a king was expected to bribe his supporters and the church with gifts. We've been seeing this play out in Mercia and virtually every Anglo-Saxon kingdom for centuries now. Kings rule through the consensus of the powerful, and a king is expected to be a giver of rings. And so gifts were regularly given out to nobles and churchmen. It was a culture of bribery, and it was so ingrained that even as the Viking threat began to crescendo, we still saw the king of Wessex giving gifts to the church in exchange for their support of his son. Well, the trouble with that is that these kings have been doing this for generations, and available resources might have been drying up. It's an unpopular truth, but there are finite resources in the world. Right now, we live in a time where our leaders love to promise unending prosperity, where the growth of wealth for one doesn't mean that there's less available for everybody else. Instead, everyone gets a pony, and not just any pony, but the best, most luxurious pony you've ever seen. Really, you're going to love this pony. It's top of the line, and when you get it, your head's going to spin. But the truth is that there are only so many resources in the world, both now and in the past. And in Mercia, we're seeing signs that the kings were hitting the limits of their wealth and resource exploitation. But due to the cultural expectations of rule, they were caught between a rock and a hard place, where the upper classes that supported them demanded gifts of land and luxury. But there wasn't all that much that the kings could give anymore. It wasn't that they were poor, because they weren't. But they weren't as rich as they once were. And there were other things to consider with the gifts of land that were being demanded. Think about it this way. If you have 100 acres of land and 10 friends who helped you get where you are, they're probably going to want a little payback. Now, even if you're stingy and only give them an acre each, that means that your heir will only inherit 90 acres. And when he takes power, he's going to need to reward his supporters. Now, rinse and repeat that a few times. And imagine that you're the great-great-great-grandson. Suddenly, you only have 25 acres. And I suppose that would be okay if it wasn't for the fact that your supporters all have their own dynasties that have become quite powerful in their own right due to all the land grants they'd received over the generations. So now, many generations down the line, your supporters all have about 25 acres each and are starting to wonder why you are ruling instead of them. Not only that, but they still expect you to give them gifts of land. The trouble is that you can't really give them any more land. Otherwise, they'll end up with more land than you have. And then you're really up shit creek without a paddle. So, further divesting is just straight out. You can't do it anymore. And while you can attack your neighbor and take his lands, 
eventually there isn't going to be anything more to take. Further, it's not like annexing your neighbor comes without its own problems. Many times, in addition to getting new lands, you end up getting a bunch of new enemies and a few rival dynasties. So that's not really sustainable either. Now some kingdoms, like Northumbria, tried to solve the issue by manipulating their currency. They'd mix cheap metals in with their coins, and then take a cut of the pure metals from the mint and use that to grant fabulous cash and prizes to the nobles who demanded them. But that was a short-term and frankly short-sighted solution, since the debased currency soon became virtually worthless and it wrecked havoc upon the economy. So. That leads us to the solution that Northumbria, Mercia, and Wessex were all starting to turn to. Robbing the church, nicking land, and then sometimes selling it back to God. And on the one hand, these religious houses were often filled with noble family members who were seeking power rather than devout pious people. And they were fantastically wealthy, often the most wealthy institutions in the entire kingdom. So it's not like they were stealing a hair shirt off the back of a lovely old monk. They were taking lands from what was essentially a second class of nobles who had not only expanded their power through gifts and tithes, but they'd also grown even more wealthy thanks to the fact that they were generally exempt from taxes as well. So you can see why they'd make an enticing target to collect some, how shall we put this, back taxes. But on the other hand, Stealing from the church, even if it was quite wealthy, doesn't exactly look good, and it was likely to earn you the wrath of the clergy, if not God himself. This was far from a perfect solution. But the truth is that there wasn't any solution to this problem. It was a failure of Anglo-Saxon society, built upon a culture of greed and bribery that required constant growth. But unrestrained and unending growth just wasn't a thing. The wall that they were crashing into had always been there, and they were finding out it was too late to try and turn the car around. And before you say, those Anglo-Saxons were idiots, they should have known that that was an obvious trap and tried to get around it. Don't forget that building a nation around the idea that you have unending growth is still a problem we deal with today. America did it in 2008 with housing, and it nearly broke the entire world's economy. And China is suffering through a similar thing right now though they won't hear about it on this podcast because the BHP is banned there. But it's the same story we're looking at when we see the Anglo-Saxon nobility suddenly turn to stealing from the church. And it makes sense when you look at the cultural situation the kings were living in. It wasn't that they were the enemies of God or wicked men. I mean, maybe they were, but that wasn't why they were robbing the church. They were robbing the church because the kings needed to bribe their supporters and the royal resources were drying up. The church was just the latest money tree. And the fact that these kings were risking the political fallout that comes from attacking the church tells you just how desperate for funds they were becoming. It was a Dark Ages financial crisis, and if they couldn't find a way to bridge the gap, their society might crumble. The kings and nobles were out of options, and they didn't know how to run things without the system of bribes and the wealth that it required. So, rather than anything personal, this was very likely just a stopgap measure. The nobility were trying to keep the dance going, and this was probably seen as the best available option. 
It's just a shame that these Anglo-Saxon kings hadn't learned the lessons that many college students learn with their first credit cards. You can only kite those bills so long. And by failing to address the real issue, all you're doing is making things worse for yourself in the future. So, Mercia was in deep trouble. Not only were they facing off with dynastic troubles, but they were following Northumbria down a path towards an economic collapse. All at a time when they could least afford these sorts of problems. Because the Vikingers were only just getting started. And at the same time that the king of Mercia was looting the church to pay his bills, bands of Vikingers were establishing fortified bases and wintering in Ireland for the first time. They were evolving beyond mere seasonal raiders, and were now wealthy enough and commanded forces large enough to become an occupying force just across the Irish Sea, and even up in Scotland. How long before they would bring this innovation to the fertile lands of England? All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And, of course, we have many other social media groups that you can join, and you can find links to all of them at our site, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>